The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation, the works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will be ever mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and all and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Okay, we are going to be in Deuteronomy 31, verses 14 through 21. A witness for me against the children of Israel. This will be our 91st Deuteronomy sermon. And uh, as I said last week, before we get into it, and I may say it in the introduction, I can't remember, is that this sermon, uh, the verses in this sermon are very, very poorly translated by almost every version of the Bible. I don't think I found one that was without error, and it's so important getting what is being said in the Hebrew properly translated into English, and I think you'll agree with this when you see the mistranslations. But for now, we're in verse, uh, starting in verse 31, 14, and we're going through 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured. And many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done in that they have turned to other gods. Now, therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them, and they will provoke me and break my covenant. Then it shall be, when many evils and troubles have come upon them, that this song will testify against them as a witness, for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I have brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. The passage today is so poorly translated by almost every version of the Bible that it is almost impossible to properly tell what is going on. Even Young's, who I, I love Robert Young's translation, he is the most literal translation of all and who got most of the subtleties right, failed to get verse 20 right. As I was typing the sermon, I almost felt I owed you an apology for the amount of time I will have to explain to you all the inaccuracies that are found in the version that I use for sermons, meaning the New King James Version. But they simply follow along with the innumerable mistranslations of the King James Version. And pretty much all others make the exact same mistakes. 
However, I shall not apologize to you for two reasons. First, what you will go through is only about 40 minutes or so. I had to go through it for almost 10 hours just to ensure it was right for you. As such, how can I feel like you shouldn't have to go through that also? But secondly, once you see why these changes are so important to understanding what is being said, I honestly think that you will agree that all of the minutia that we have to go through is actually worth it. Our text verse comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. I think that this is the first time I have ever done a sermon where I used the same verse for the text verse as I do for the closing verse. I think it's right to do so because without understanding all of the corrections to the errors and translations in the sermon verses, you might come up with a completely different view of what Paul is saying. I mean, how many denominations, churches, pastors, preachers, and teachers adamantly state that a person can lose his salvation? We're reading the same Bible and coming to completely different conclusions concerning a matter of real doctrinal importance. In the end, only one view is correct. That means that the other is incorrect. And that means that an enormous number of people believe 100% incorrectly on this issue. Can you lose your salvation or is it eternal? That is problematic. Paul says that God who calls you is faithful. He also says that he will perform, meaning do what he said in the previous verse, meaning preserving us blameless. Either what he says is true or it is not. But where do we find out about the faithfulness of God? How can we tell if he is reliable or not? Well, you can do so right from the history and continued existence of Israel. But when you either don't know that history or when you have a faulty view of it because of faulty translations, as well as faulty teachers of the word concerning it, then you will naturally come to the conclusion that God's faithfulness is not always something to be relied on. How tragic. Let us be in the word. Let us evaluate it as precisely as we can. And let us never apologize for doing so. I went through it for you, and now you just sit there and sit still and listen to it from me. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is, I will surely hide my face in that day. It's verses 14 through 18. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, Vayomer Yehovah el Moshe, and said Yehovah unto Moses. The words are rare for Deuteronomy. Moses has been speaking throughout the vast majority of the book. But now, after Moses has given these many words and chapters of instruction, it is the Lord who speaks, and it is directly to Moses. The Lord's words are words of ending and finality, and yet they are also words of continuance and a new direction. Moses is he who draws out. He has drawn out the will of the Lord for the people of Israel. The time for that is now coming to a close. As such, the Lord says, verse 14 continues, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Hen karevu yamecha lamut. Behold, approach your days to die. The meaning is obvious. The days until Moses dies are coming to a close. Because of this, preparations must be made for things to continue on after his death. Therefore, verse 14 continues, call Joshua. Joshua has been Moses' assistant and second in command for the past 40 years. His name means the Lord, or Yah, is salvation. It is he who has already been noted as Moses' successor in Numbers 27. The ongoing narrative since then has now caught up to that account. In other words, just as Ruth belongs within the book of Judges chronologically, what occurs now belongs within the time frame of the book of Numbers. Deuteronomy is an account that details Moses' words within the ongoing narrative. Notice how what is said now 
is said in Deuteronomy, and it fits into what is said then. Here's what it says there. Now the Lord said to Moses, go up into this Mount Abarim and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you shall be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was gathered. For in the wilderness of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah at Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Then Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of these spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation, who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua. We're just catching up to that right now in Deuteronomy. Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. And you shall give some of your authority to him that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. He shall stand before Eleazar the priest who shall inquire before the Lord for him by the judgment of the Urim. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him, all the congregation. So Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation. And he laid his hands on him and inaugurated him, just as the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. Moses doesn't go up to view the land of promise until Deuteronomy 34. And yet the Lord told him to go up and view it in Numbers 27. The same is true with the commissioning of Joshua right now. The narrative is lining up now with the unfolding events. It is now at this specific time before the death of Moses that he is to call Joshua, verse 14 going on, and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting. The translation is incorrect, or at least faulty in this case. And present yourselves in tent meeting. Doesn't say the tabernacle of meeting. The words here may not be referring to the tabernacle where the ark is at all. This is because it clearly says that they would present themselves in the tent. The tabernacle, after its ordination, was only, only, only to be accessed by the Levitical priests in the performance of their duties. Therefore, this could be a completely different tent noted in Exodus 33, where Moses would meet with the Lord and where Joshua was also allowed access. Here's what it says there. Now, and I'm using the NASB 1995 version for this. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. So you can see it's a different edifice than the tabernacle. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. Here it is. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. However, in Exodus 39, the tabernacle is described by the same words, ohel moed, or tent of meeting. Thus, all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. So, this is either the tent noted in Exodus 33, or Joshua, who is not of Levi, is given a special allowance to enter into the tabernacle. Either way, it is in the tent of meeting that Moses and Aaron were to meet before the Lord, as he says, verse 14 going on, that I may inaugurate him. The word is tzava. It is most often translated as command. Here, the same meaning may be applied as long as the intent is understood. One might say that I may command him, but it is with the intent of laying a charge upon him. As such, verse 14 continues, So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tent of meeting. Again, it says, in tent meeting. 
Thus, it is either the tent where Moses and Joshua met with the Lord, as is noted in Exodus 33, or it is a special allowance for Joshua to actually go into the tabernacle, which is the tent of meeting. Either way, it next says, verse 15, now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle. The words are again wrong. Ve'yera Yehovah ba'ohel, and appeared Yehovah in the tent. The Lord is visibly manifesting himself in this manner in order to complete the commissioning of Joshua. The manifestation is, verse 15 continues, in a pillar of cloud. The pillar of cloud was said to be above the tabernacle, Hamishkan, throughout all of the journeys of Israel. That's found in Numbers 40. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle, the Mishkan, by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. But of this pillar of cloud, it next says, verse 15 continues, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. Again, it reads Ohel, not Mishkan. It says tent, not tabernacle. This is the same terminology used of the tent of meeting noted in Exodus 33:9, which I already cited. Remember, they would go outside the camp and then they would go into the tent and the pillar would descend down on them. So it's the same terminology being used back then. That was originally outside of the camp. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. Therefore, either the tent and the tabernacle are being spoken of synonymously here and elsewhere, which does occur elsewhere, or it is referring to two separate edifices. If it is the same edifice, then the tabernacle, which is also the tent of meeting, would have replaced the original tent of meeting referred to in Exodus 33. The whole point of this before I go on is that wherever the Lord meets is the tent of meeting. It wouldn't matter if we met over there. That would be the tent of meeting. But I want you to understand that it may or may not be the same edifice, okay? It wouldn't be good to be dogmatic about either view as the back and forth nature of the words in the books of Moses makes either possible. But wherever the Lord is, that is the tent of meeting. However, why would the pillar need to stand above the door of the tabernacle if synonymous, when it has already been said that it was always above it during their journeys? But if the pillar moved from the tabernacle to a tent, meaning a separate edifice, then the wording might more logically follow. I would assume, though, this is Charlie Garrett's assumption after all of that analysis, that the tent of meeting is also the tabernacle. But I just don't want to present something incorrect and then find out that I was wrong someday. Thus, I am giving a more detailed analysis than may be necessary. The main sticking point is whether Joshua, not of Levi, was given a special dispensation to enter this tabernacle or not. No matter what, the issue at hand is the ordination of Joshua. That will come to pass, but before it does, Moses is told about the future history of his people. Verse 16, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers. The word rest is an explanation or a paraphrase. The Hebrew uses the word shachav. It means to lie down, as in rest. Behold, you will lie down with your fathers. It is a metaphorical way of speaking of death. Some argue that this is not a valid concept to refer to a future resurrection, but I would disagree. The hope of the resurrection already existed very clearly at this time. Job who was contemporary with Abraham many years earlier, spoke of both. Here's what Job said, which we actually read the second quote that I'm going to give you at the funeral on Thursday night, okay? But from Job chapter 7 first, Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down, shakav, in the dust, and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. But Job has a better hope than just lying down in the dust for all eternity. Job 19, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Sleep despite being used metaphorically for death, implies that one will awaken. Paul carefully uses the word sleep again and again 
concerning the state of believers in his epistles. In 1 Thessalonians, he uses both words synonymously to confirm this. Here's from 1 Thessalonians 4. For this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead, the synonymous use of it, in Christ will rise first. The words to Moses now are words of comfort and of hope of what God has promised from the very fall of man. As for Israel, there is less hope for them, at least in some respects. Verse 16 going on. And this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land. The translation completely misses the intent of what the Lord is conveying. Vekam ha'am hazeh vezana achare elohe nechar ha'aretz and will rise the people, the this, and play harlot after God's foreigner, the land. The word ha'am, or the people, is singular, as is the word nekar, or foreigner. The two are being placed in union with one another. Just as an adulterous woman would unite herself with another man, the gods are the play toys of the illicit lover with whom Israel commits her adultery. Israel, as a united whole, will apostatize from the way of the Lord. In turning from him, who is their husband by covenant, they will play the harlot. The implication, even before he says it in a coming clause, is that their harlotry is to be considered adultery. A wife cheating on her husband. The idea of Israel being a spouse to the Lord in relation to this covenant is explicitly stated by him in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Rather than fidelity to the Lord, their husband, the people will prostitute themselves by worshiping and serving other gods. Verse 16 continues, where they go to be among them. The words are still in the singular. Asher hu bash amak bekirbo, which he goes there in his midst. You see, they translated it they. Almost all translations do, but it's actually singular. He. The entire beauty of the picture being presented is obliterated in the translation. The Lord is very clearly presenting himself as an offended spouse whose wife is nothing but a cheap harlot. It calls to mind the book of Hosea many hundreds of years later where the prophet is used to clearly present this truth. But the Lord knows the inclination of the people and thus continues. Verse 16 going on, And they will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. It is all in the singular. And he will forsake me and he will break my covenant which I have made with him. Israel, the people, despite the masculine, is the spouse of the Lord by covenant. He will break his part of the bargain. One can see the personal nature of the offense as he says, forsake me and my covenant. The Lord is the offended party. Israel is the unfaithful spouse. The next verse, again, is very poorly translated. As such, the precision of the words of the Lord to Moses is lost. It switches from the singular to the plural, and then it goes back to the singular. This is as the New King James Version renders it, which follows the King James Version. Here's how they render it. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. However, the verse more closely reads, and my anger shall be aroused against him in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and he shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall him, and he will say in that day, is it not because that my God is not in my midst, these evils have found me. Does anybody see the importance of this yet? 
She's got her head shaking, yes. What is going on is that God has made a covenant with a group of people, a single entity, but he will never cut off that group of people, even if he cuts off the people within that group. And I'm going to explain that again, but I want you to understand why this is so absolutely crucial to proper theology concerning our relationship with the Lord. Will he cut you off as an individual or not? With this understanding, we can now evaluate the verse that we just looked at, verse 17, then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day. The Lord, in advance of what is absolutely sure to come, says, Vehara api bo bayom hahu, and shall burn my nostril in him, singular, in the day the that. It is as if flames shoot out of his nostril at his wayward spouse. I caught you with another. The enraged husband has borne the grief of the offense. As such, verse 17 continues, and I will forsake them. In the last verse, it said, ve'azavani, and he will forsake me. Now it says, ve'azavtim, and I will forsake them. It does not say, I will forsake him, meaning the collective body of Israel. Notice how carefully the words are chosen. The Lord has promised to never forsake Israel, but he can and will forsake the people who comprise Israel, even while not forsaking the nation itself. We have a covenant. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. He says, I will preserve this people forever. Yeah. We now have a new covenant. And he says, I will save you and I will give you a guarantee of that salvation. If he lies to Israel, you might as well forget your covenant that he has made with you. Does everybody see the importance of this? We're going to continue to see this. The care and precision of the words are given to show us the Lord's complete and wholehearted faithfulness to the covenant to the covenant. He forsakes the individual people who forsake him, but not the group of people who are his. Verse 17 continues, and I will hide my face from them. And I will hide my face from them. One can get the sense of a king not allowing his disobedient subjects to come into his presence. Again, it is unthinkable that the Lord would hide his face from those who are faithful to him. Thus, it is unthinkable that he would hide his face from the entire nation. In other words, when Jesus came, there are those who accepted him, and there are those who rejected him. The nation rejected him, didn't they? The nation as a whole. But even to this day, there has always been a remnant who have come to him through Christ. That's found in Romans 11, verse 5. If he were to hide his face from the nation as a whole, it would mean that there would be none saved from the nation. But if he hides his face, meaning his favor from the individuals of the nation, it still leaves room for his favor to extend to anyone who will turn to him. The same is true with the tribulation period. God could say, I will hide myself from mankind. That would mean that none could be saved. Instead, he will hide his face from men, but not all of mankind. Those who turn to him will receive his salvation. Wonderful truths can be discerned right from verses such as this in Deuteronomy 31. For now the Lord continues, verse 17 going on, and they shall be devoured. And he shall be for eating. The cutting of a covenant carries with it the idea of a meal. Sometimes this is made explicit. For example, when Jacob made a covenant with Laban, they had a meal between them. Likewise, at the cutting of the covenant at Sinai, the leaders of Israel came up the mountain and ate and drank in the presence of the Lord. In the previous verse, it said that Israel would break the covenant. The meal between the two was disgraced because Israel's serving other gods, implying having meals in their presence through fellowship offerings. Because of its ways, Israel would instead become a nation suited for consumption by others for their unfaithfulness to the Lord. This thought is expressed concerning an adulterous wife in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 30, verse 20, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wickedness. In this state, the Lord says, verse 17 continues, and many evils and troubles shall befall them. And shall find him evils many and distresses. 
These have already been carefully explained in chapter 28, the blessings and the curses. The curses that will come upon Israel will be great, severe, consuming, and prolonged. All of this will come upon them, verse 17 continues, so that they will say in that day, Ve'amar bayom hahu, and he will say in the day, the, that. The nation, its people, in its synagogues, in its dispersion, in its continued state of being hated by all around them, in that day, the nation will say, verse 17 continues, have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us. Whatever the context for the nation at any given time and in any given place, it as a united cry will acknowledge its rejection saying is not because that my God is not in my midst. These evils have found me. It doesn't matter who among the people says it, how many times it is said, where it is said, and so on. It is a cry which unites the entire nation as a whole. I am Israel, and God is not with me. Instead, these evils are now my lot. Charles Ellicott, who lived in the 1800s, noted of these words right here in this clause that they are a confession made freely by them at this present day. His ears had heard them say this. Israel forsook its God, and God forsook them, even if he is not forsaken it. And the Lord continues, verse 18, and I will surely hide my face in that day. The words bear a strong emphasis. And I, hiding, will hide my face in the day, the that. The favorable countenance of the Lord will not rest upon Israel. They will continue down their evil path, knowing that the Lord is not among them, and yet they will not demonstrate the intelligence of seeking out why. But the answer is perfectly discernible. It is, verse 18 going on, because of all the evil which they have done in that they have turned to other gods. There is a pun in the words, and they are in the singular. Above all the evil which he has done, for he has turned unto God's other. The word face used in the previous clause is derived from the word turned in this clause. In other words, the hiding of the face of the Lord is a direct consequence of Israel having turned its face away from the Lord and toward other gods. I will not reveal myself to them while they are looking to other gods for revelation. At this time, there are innumerable gods in Israel. I'm speaking about right now, right now. There are many, many gods in Israel. If you don't believe me, go online and look inside the homes of Jewish people. They got Krishna in the corner. They got Buddha here. They, they just follow every god but the Lord. It is unbelievable. But as a nation, they generally claim that they would be the people of the Lord. You hear that from the government all the time. However, the Lord revealed himself to them in the face of Jesus Christ. If you don't understand that, read the four Gospels in the book of Acts, okay? Because they rejected him, meaning Jesus, one could ask, is there then a difference in the Lord Jehovah and the Lord Jesus for them to still claim to be the people of the Lord? The answer is no. They are one and the same. But one might then ask in rejecting Christ, what does it mean to them when they say they are the people of the Lord? If they are following the Lord, Jehovah of the Old Testament, and Jesus is Jehovah, then are they following the same Lord? It is a false comparison. Following the Lord doesn't simply mean following a name. It means being obedient to that name in the manner in which he expects. They are not following the Lord. They have rejected Christ, who is the Lord. And they have attempted to pursue God through their own righteousness, not his. Therefore, they are not following the Lord at all, and thus they are not now the Lord's people. That's Romans 9, verse 26. This is the error in thinking of dual covenant theology, such as that proposed by the Roman Catholic Church and John Hagee. Oh, Jews are saved through the Mosaic Covenant, and Christians are saved through Jesus. Wrong. They say that the Jews are following the Lord, and therefore they can be saved through adherence to the law which the Lord gave. That is incorrect. 
read the book of Romans or Galatians or any of Paul's epistles, and you'll see that very clearly, also the book of Acts. It is also the error of the Hebrew Roots Movement the Seventh-day Adventists, and others who claim that they are following the Lord without trusting in the Lord alone. No person can be saved by adherence to the law. It can only come by trusting in His, Jesus, fulfillment of it, because He embodies the law. Israel is trusting in the God of self before the Lord, not in the Lord. As such, the face of the Lord is hidden from them. It is a passive hiding a self-inflicted wound from 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, meaning Jesus, the veil is taken away. With this understood, the Lord will next give explicit and specific instructions for Moses, a song to bring to remembrance my word, so that when it comes to pass, you know I knew you will be able to consider all that you have heard, and if you are wise, you will also know what to do. But you are a nation without understanding, and I know the inclination of your heart. You are like a spoiled child, ever demanding that I bless you while you tear us apart. This song will testify against you. It will stand as a witness when your ears have heard. You will know that despite your wickedness, I have remained true and that I have always been faithful to my word. Our second thought today, this song will testify. It's verses 19 through 21. Before I go on, I want to remind you, I said that they are not now the Lord's people. That is found in the book of Romans. I will call them a people who are not my people. I will call my people not my people, etc. Okay, that's Charlie Garrett paraphrase. But he says at this dispensation in time, Israel is not his people. They have to come to Christ and then they will again be his people. That's in either one or two Peter. You can read that as well. Verse 19, now therefore, write down this song for yourselves. The verb is plural in this clause. The instructions are for both Moses and Joshua to write down the song to yourselves. It is plural. The song itself is introduced in the last verse of this chapter, and it comprises the majority of the next chapter. I'm so excited about it. It's just such a beautiful passage. I I won't get into it now. I just am so excited about the Song of Moses. The meaning is that it is for Moses to convey, but it is also for Joshua, who is there with Moses, to write. As it is contained within Deuteronomy, then it was something that was to be conveyed to the people by the leader at any appropriate time in their history. Verse 19 continues, and teach it to the children of Israel. The word so frequently used in Deuteronomy, lamad, is used by the Lord here. It signifies to goad, as if you're prodding an animal along, and thus it means to teach. Being in the form of a song, it would be a memory tool for the people. How many people can remember a song they haven't heard in 35 years? Always, because that's what music does to us, and and meter and rhyme, etc. It sets our brains in a different way. The verb here is singular. Moses is to teach to the people, and that is what will be seen when it is presented. Nothing is said of music to accompany it. And when it is presented, it says that Moses will speak the words of the song. Along with teaching it to them, the Lord next says to, verse 19 going on, put it in their mouths. Moses, the verb is again singular, is not only to read it to them, but to have them repeat it back to them until they have it in their mouths, meaning that it is committed to memory and that it can be called back from their mouths at any time. This is also what Paul later teaches those at Colossae, and thus to us who have received the words of Paul written in the book of Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. The music selection today was wonderful, Jim. Thank you. This song that Moses instructs is to have a set and enduring purpose. Verse 19 continues that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. To end purpose may be to me the song, the this, a witness in sons Israel. 
There's a set reason that the Lord is giving Israel the words of this song. It is to stand as a permanently recorded witness in advance of their entry into the promise concerning what is conveyed in it. Israel can never say that what happened to them was arbitrary, unjustified, without warning, and without a full description of what they would face. There is no excuse for them as a people or as people. Even if they are unaware of the words, that is a fault of the people as well. They were told to know it and to have it in their mouths. It will now be compiled and delivered to them for the time, verse 20, when I have brought them to the land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers. The word translated as land here signifies the ground, ha'adama, the ground. It is a different word than will be seen in the next verse. Also, the words are in the singular. When I have brought him unto the ground of which I swore to his fathers, flowing with milk and honey. Israel, the nation, is being brought into the spot of ground that was sworn to the fathers to be given to the people, a land flowing with milk and honey. This is the sixth and the last time that this phrase is mentioned in the book of Deuteronomy. It is more than any other book in the Bible. Every time it is mentioned, a note concerning the fathers is found in the immediate context. It is a good land and one that comes by promise. As this is the last time the term milk and honey is used in this book, and because it is such a commonly used term in scripture, it would be good to review its meaning once again. A land flowing with milk and honey implies richness and fertility. Milk comes from cows, and so it means abundant pasture lands. Honey comes from bees, which pollinate flowers, and so it implies all sorts of fruit trees and herbs and flowers. And more, for Israel, the term a land flowing with milk and honey will also possess a spiritual connotation. For them, it doesn't just speak of the physical abundance, but also of spiritual abundance because of the Lord, and because they are the Lord's people through whom the word of God comes. The word of God is said to be sweeter than honey. It is also equated with milk that nourishes. Thus, this is a reference to that as well. The land would literally flow with milk and honey for sustaining Israel's physical lives, but it would also flow with milk and honey for sustaining their spiritual lives. All of this was being given to them. They have done nothing to deserve it, but it is simply an act of grace based upon a promise to their fathers. The Lord promised, he is fulfilled, and he will deliver. At some point in the future, after it has been obtained, verse 20 continues, and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat. Again, the words are in the singular, and he has eaten and filled himself, and he has grown fat. Israel is being depicted as a single entity, like a big plump cow benefiting from his plot of ground. He eats and he grows into one who is entirely sated. But in this state of obesity and even overindulgence, I'd like you to think of America right now. Same state. Verse 20 continues, then they will turn to other gods and serve them and they will provoke me and break my covenant. The pronouns change in the middle of the clause and he will turn to other gods and they will serve them and they will spurn me and he will break my covenant. The changes as before are precise and exceptionally clear. Israel will turn to other gods. As such, the people will serve those gods and the people will spurn the Lord and Israel will break the covenant. The covenant is with the nation of Israel. If someone serves other gods and spurns the Lord, the nation could judge him and execute him. The covenant is not broken except by that one person. However, if the nation turns from the Lord and the people serve other gods, the only one left to punish the people and thus the nation is the Lord. There's nobody left. So the Lord has to take action. Every single word Every word is masterfully issued forth so that we can clearly see what is going on. The same general type of thought is found in the seven letters to the seven churches. The churches are addressed as a whole, but at times individuals are clearly singled out. Without a proper consideration of these things, which must come from a proper translation of them, it is not possible to tell what is going on exactly. But, how wonderful it is to see the precision of what is conveyed here to Moses and Joshua by the Lord. For now, the Lord notes that the covenant is broken by the nation. 
as such, verse 21, then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness. Everything here has spoken of Israel as an individual and it shall be when have come upon him evils, many, and troubles that will testify this song to him, to witness. It is Israel upon whom the evils and troubles will alight. But when the nation does, it cannot say that they were unaware of why. The purpose of the song was to be as a witness held in the national memory. The idea being conveyed is the supernatural preservation of the word of God. If it were up to man, it may be lost. But the Lord ensured that there would always, forever, be a suitable and reliable copy of it available. This is clearly seen in the next words. Verse 21 continues, For it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. Again, the pronouns are tragically wrong. For no, it will be forgotten from his mouth, his seed. Individuals may have no idea that the words even existed but they would never be missing from the mouth of Israel, meaning the availability to have them issue forth, even throughout all of its generations, meaning his seed. Because it is in the singular, it is a way of implicitly saying that the word will always, always and forever be available to Israel. And this is borne out to be true throughout their entire history. At one point, it was locked away in the temple, which had been completely shut up so far were the people away from the Lord that they didn't even know that the word existed. But it did. It was preserved for the nation. When it was found, it was a witness to it of its guilt, exactly as the Lord promises right now in the book of Deuteronomy. Here's what it says in 2 Kings 22. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. So there it was, preserved for Israel. Before I go on, what happened in 1947? Dead Sea Scrolls. It's another witness one year before they become a nation. Wake up, Israel. Wake up, America. Wake up, Christian believer in the word of God. Accept this word as valid and true. We'll go on. So Shaphan, the scribe, went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. Every single year around America, people go out and they read the entire Bible for 72 hours in public forums. They do it in Venice every year. They do it in other places. They do it on the, the steps of Washington, D.C. And if only the people of this nation would have that reaction right there, yeah. tearing our clothes and weeping before yeah. the Lord. Then the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, Shaphan the scribe, and Asaiah, a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. Think of America. Wrath is coming, people. The witness stood and the words of this song along with the other words of the book testified against Israel. It had to be this way. The Lord already understood the nation's proclivities. Verse 21 finishes with, For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I brought them to the land of which I swore to give them. Again, the pronouns must be clarified. For I know the inclination which he does today in advance that I have brought him unto the land which I swore. Israel had been a disobedient son from the moment he was called out of Egypt. The people had moaned all the way to Mount Sinai, didn't they? They rebelled there at the sacred mountain, didn't they? They moaned and complained on the way to the land of promise, didn't they? They rebelled against the Lord at its borders. They had been disobedient and moaning throughout all the years of exile in the wilderness as well. This was his inclination all along. 
How much more could this be expected when the people were interspersed throughout the land, filling themselves with food, easily able to hide away their wicked deeds, disobedience, adulteries, and the like? The Lord knew, and he set forth this song to be a summary of the nation's existence and a witness to testify to his faithfulness in their continuance before him, despite their faithlessness toward him. This is the marvel of God's covenant keeping. When he speaks, it is an eternal decree. If people could understand that one premise, they would have so much better understanding of God in general. What God says is eternal. He is outside of time, and when he speaks, it is done. He will never fail to keep his part of a covenant that he enters into, ever. The tragedy for us is that we fail to accept that this is true. There are those who fail to acknowledge it towards Israel, saying the Lord is through with them or the Lord has replaced them. And there are those who fail to acknowledge it towards saved believers, saying that the Lord may just renege on his part of the deal when he saves us and seals us with a guarantee concerning our salvation. The more we see this in the Old Testament, the more astonishing it is to consider. It shows the immense failure of scholars, pastors, preachers, and teachers of the church to simply pick up their Bibles, read them, and accept what is stated at face value. However, if the translation is incorrect, then incorrect ideas will be held in the mind of those who read them. Thus, it is a failure on the part of translators as well. It is a tragedy, and is one that is taught into the minds of congregants, destroying their doctrine, and then weakening their faith in the Lord and in their confidence of His Word. Let us look to the history and continued existence of this disobedient nation, and then let us exalt the faithfulness of God toward them. At the same time, let this lesson of Israel give us confidence that when we stumble before the Lord, He is there with us. He is keeping us from falling altogether. We can have every confidence that his salvation is full, final, and forever. Thank God for his faithfulness to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Everybody get it now? Why it's so important to have those things translated properly? And I don't mean to belittle anybody, but I want you to know what is correct. And I went... 26 translations, and none of them got them all correct. None of them. And then there's a, you can click on additional translations, and you pull up another 50 or so. All wrong. If you don't get those pronouns correctly, your mind is going to believe that God has cut off Israel, and hence we have replacement theology. Oh, he's done with them. That is incorrect. We need to understand the word, and that's why we go line by line. It's not a better way of doing sermons. It's not, you know, whatever. It just is the way that I do things because I want you to have the proper theology to make your decisions on. And if you want to listen to life application sermons, just turn on the radio. It's full of them. They build me up. I listen to them and I get happy and I'm like, oh, I love that. But I want you to know the intricacies. That to me is where it all rests. If you got them wrong, everything else is going to follow. So here's the simple message of everything we talked about today. God loves the people of this world. That's evident from the very beginning, right at the fall of man. We know that God loves the people of this world. And he has put into operation a program of redemption to bring the world to himself. And he has worked it out slowly and methodically through what are called dispensations. God does this and he shows us, see how corrupt you are? And so he changes it a little bit so we can see a little more how corrupt we are. He gives them a law and it shows really how corrupt we are. Everything keeps telling us, wow, it doesn't matter what we do, we keep screwing it up. And so what does he do? He says, I will take care of this problem all by myself. You don't have to do anything. And he takes you all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. Abraham believed God and he, God, credited him, Abraham, to righteousness. He takes us all the way back there and he says, now I'm going to show you how I am going to do this for you. And he sends his son into the world. Born without sin, he has no human father. God is his father. Sin travels from father to child. And so he's born without sin. The Gospels are there to record that he lived his life without sin. The sinless Son of God then gave up his life in exchange for your sins and mine. He says, I will do this for you. And all I ask, I don't ask anything else except this. Believe. Have faith. That's what he asks. Christ died for your sins. Believe that. Christ was buried. Believe that. Christ rose again. Believe that. 
That's all he asks you to believe. And it says, when you do, if you don't believe me, go read Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. When you believe, he seals you with the Holy Spirit. The guarantee, absolute guarantee of your redemption, as we talked about in Bible study, I think it was two weeks ago, is that the word, the aravon, the deposit, is something that we hold. God has put the onus on himself. When you give somebody a deposit, it's saying that this is a claim. God has said, you have the right to claim what I have given you. I have given you the deposit. And so when Christ comes again, we have the right to say, I claim this. Now, who would be presumptuous enough to do it? But that's what it is. It's an aravon. It's a guarantee. It is a sure deposit that you will be saved forever. Thank God for his faithfulness in his covenant to Israel. Because as I said earlier, if he broke that, we would all be gone. But he will keep it because he is faithful. Call on Jesus. Believe that simple gospel message. There's nothing else you need to do. Call on him today, please. Our closing verse comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I believe you've heard these words just about 30 minutes ago. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. And also, we'll do it. Next week is Deuteronomy 31, 22 through 30. We're going to finish up this chapter. It will testify against Israel. Yes, it is true. It is entitled, A Witness Against You. That'll be our 92nd Deuteronomy sermon. Okay. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. But he also has expectations of you as he prepares you for entrance into the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? The important part right now is he's going to do marvelous things for you. Oh, you get to go to heaven, but he'll also do marvelous things through you if you just let him. Think of that boy that we talked about in Pakistan today. One boy, 17 years old, gets an audio Bible, and he leads his entire tribe to Christ. He can do marvelous things for you if you're willing Okay, I've got a question for you before we do this. Now, I didn't know last week. It's not just a, a uh, what do you call this, a uh, postcard, thank you. But there's also a little pendant that you can wear. It's got the, uh, the star and the, the fish on it from Rhoda in Israel. If you can answer this really difficult question, we have a Sergio and Rhoda video released today, don't we? Okay, I want you to go home and watch it. You'll really enjoy it. It explains everything that he and Yossi and I went through three years ago. All the tragedy that was not put into this fun video. And there's a lot of tragedy, okay? And a couple times that Uncle Charlie got really upset at nephew Sergio. Several, four, many times, okay? Okay, if you're watching, Sergio, I'm still burning. Okay. They released a video today. Where is Rhoda mentioned in the Bible? Oh, she went and answered the door. Hey! She said she was just going to take one. Well, she did. She just took one. There it is. Did somebody else answer that? I think it was your brother, wasn't it? What did you say? I heard an... Oh, well, then you get the other one. No, no, no. no. Give it to... You pick the person to give it to. That's fine. Somebody's going to walk up to you, and you... I did not know that. So we got two of them. One for you and one for you. Congratulations. Okay. Here we go. I got a poem and we'll be done. Actually, then we'll get the Lord's Supper. A witness for me against the children of Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting that I may inaugurate him. To this you must comply. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. This duty they did tackle. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud. And the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them, rebelling against my hand. Then my anger shall be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them. Yes, hide it away, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and troubles shall befall them, so that they will in that day say, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, 
because of all the evil which they have done in that they have turned to other gods, the harlot they will play. Now, therefore, write down this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. So to you, I tell, put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. When I have brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey, of which I swore to their fathers and they have eaten and filled themselves and grown fat, then they will turn to other gods and serve them. And they will provoke me and break my covenant just like that. Then it shall be when many evils and troubles have come upon them that this song will testify against them as a witness. So I convey for it will not be forgotten in the mouths of their descendants. For I know the inclination of their behavior today, even before I brought them to the land of which I swore to give them their ways. I fully understand Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for your faithfulness to the covenant. Every single person here that has been saved by the shed blood of Christ has certainly not been faithful to you. We have all transgressed in one way or another, and yet you will continue to save us until that day because you have made it so, and we're so thankful for that. Your lesson of Israel stands as a witness to us of your faithfulness. Thank you that we have this surety. Thank you that we can live this life with the absolute sure hope that we will someday be in your presence because of what Jesus has done. Thank you, Lord God, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.